Good morning. <clears throat> I suppose it was the fall semester of 2008. Um, I was, uh, this is like pre-gypsy phase. I had like a year where I was a gypsy where I lived in a van and I toured and um, performed professionally and all that. Um, why did I say performed? I, I toured and did magic, but sometimes you can't say magic in church, so illusionist, whatever. So all our flyers said illusionist, otherwise we didn't get hired, but I was a magician. I got Magic Magazine. I was a part of the International Brotherhood of Magicians. I get tense about how we get weird about the word magic in churches, but forget about it. Anyway, but that was before my gypsy phase. I was living in Paul's attic. You don't know Paul. It doesn't matter, but it was like the most cliche college dude thing. Like I was just in an attic of a person I barely, uh, or a family that I I just kind of met. They were like being kind to me. And I, it was literally an attic. It was like unfinished. There was like just wooden floors. And I lived on an air mattress and had just books. It was, it was a nightmare. Anyway, so I would get out uh, of my class or uh, of the bed in the morning and I'd take a shower in their family bathroom. And then I'd slam some cereal from their cabinet because that was my life at the time. I didn't realize how much I just really lived off of them until this moment. My goodness. If you ever hear this or watch this Dessange family, thank you for, I was just... I was, gosh, I used a lot of their food. But anyway, so then I'd go, I'd go to class and I would go to my first class and then we'd have chapel and or I'd have my second class. And then um, we had this thing called the cat snack on campus, which was a quick way to get food. You would scan your card and just go. And I was becoming more health conscious with the food I ate. So I would usually just get like their lettuce wrap or something and just be busting to class, man. I would just go, 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 go. Uh, if you know me, that's pretty much my sort of pattern still. I'm just, I don't know how to stop. I'm always moving. My grandpa called me thumper as a baby because I was just, my feet was always moving. I just never stop, right? And so, um, please don't start calling me Thumper. Oh, that'd frustrate me. But anyway, um, Davey, Thumper, Dave, you guys are going to start calling me all these names I don't want. But anyway, so I remember I had in an ordinary context, an ordinary conversation with an ordinary person, an ordinary time. It's just, I don't remember who it was. I've imported like three different people that I think I was talking to. Maybe it was Jabe and maybe it was Lydia. It doesn't matter. But they asked me the classic question that we try to ask each other from time to time, and we, we rarely know how to word it, but it's a question that's sort of in the realm of, how's you and Jesus? How's your relationship with God? Uh, here we just say, hey, text someone and say, how's your relationship with Jesus, right? Because we're, we're trying to follow the ways of Jesus, and newsflash, it's hard, because it's counterintuitive and countercultural, and thank God for a spirit who transforms us and guides us, but we also have our flesh that constantly pulls us away from it. So it's good that people ask us this, and I remember the, this person asked me this as I was like grabbing my lettuce, or I'm just trying to go like scan my card, and maybe sometimes I wouldn't scan my card, so I'd get extra sandwiches. I'm just kidding. But anyway, so like I was going to grab the sandwich and go. And, and they said, how's your relationship with Jesus going? And I stopped for a sec and I said, you know, I haven't thought about it today. And it's like, man, I, I go to Bible classes. I'm surrounded by theology books in this attic that I live in. Um, I went to chapel where I was forced to sing songs and, you know, for credit, I had to go or I'd get kicked out of school, whatever, you know, these sort of things. And I remember saying to this person, I haven't thought about it. It's not that I don't want to. It's not that I don't care about God. I've just been too busy and I didn't think about it. And that phrase, that moment, it was like, I don't know if you've had these moments in your life that like, they're just ordinary nothing moments, but they like ripple through your life. It's like, oh, I just remember this thing, right? That was that moment where it's like, it comes up so often. I remember when I looked at that person and just said, man, it's not that I didn't want to. I just, just been so busy. I didn't think about it. John 15, 5, Jesus says, he says a lot of great things in one through four, but we're just going to look at John 15, 5. He says, I am the vine. 
and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. This word abide means to dwell, to exist within, to be with, to to preside. It's not a passive come and go thing. It is, this is where I dwell. I abide at my home. I abide in my marriage. Those sorts of ideas. I abide as a parent. I'm not in and out. This is who I am. This is where I dwell. This is where I exist. And Jesus calls us to abide in him. But then here I say things, man, I just didn't have time. I didn't think about it. Didn't have time. I was busy. I didn't think about it. Last week, we talked about what it means to connect with each other authentically. We've been going through a series uh, of what it means to look to Jesus. We say every week we want to look to Jesus. And so as the shepherds, we said, what does it mean to look to Jesus? We're looking to Jesus. Well, we do that by worshiping God passionately, connecting with each other authentically, grow to know God deeply, and go declare the gospel boldly. This week, we're talking about growing to know God deeply. Again, last week, we talked about connecting with each other authentically, about how we're one family. And everything that we teach should be seen in that light. This is not a room full of individuals. I'm not here to just just pressure you into really getting after your life with Jesus, man. Let's go. We're doing this together. And if you think it's just on you, you haven't read the Bible. If you think it's just on you, you're a product of your culture. You believe everything's about you and you're individualistic. That's fine. That's who we are. But that's not the life of the church. That's not what Jesus has called you into. You were saved from something. You're saved for something as well. And what you're saved for is this community. His kingdom come. His will be done as a family. Remember, you can go back and listen to the podcast or watch it. But this week, we're talking about what it means to grow to know God deeply. Last week, we read what Jesus said, hey, whoever does the will of my father is my brother, is my sister, right? We, uh, uh, we looked at John six forty. Jesus said, this is the will of my father. We begged the question, what is the will of the father? What does God want from you? What does God want? You ever just like, oh, what do you want, God? Jesus says, John six forty. this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks to the son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I'll raise him up on the last day. This is the will of the Father, that everyone would look to Jesus and believe in Him. You would look to Jesus and believe in Him. That's what God's will is for you. John 17, 3. This is eternal life. Jesus is praying, the high priestly prayer. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. Emphasis on only true God in the same way that the Israel's taught to pray the Shema every day, five times a day. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. This wasn't an emphasis that there are no other gods. Quit believing there are other gods, you're stupid. No, there are other gods. That's the whole emphasis in Scripture that we like to pretend doesn't exist. In the West, we have like to roll out all ideas of deity except for maybe the big guy upstairs. No, in the world of Scripture, there's all sorts of Elohim. Elohim. Man, I hate when I mispronounce that word. Elohim? Thanks. I say Eliohim sometimes, don't I? And it's wrong. Thank you. Okay. Nathan just rebuked me. Elohim. It's a word that means God, right? And that's why you see Yahweh, your Elohim, right? That's why God is... So here when it says that the only true God, there is an assumption there are gods all over. There are spiritual forces all over. But this is eternal life, which by the way is the will of God for you, that you have eternal life by looking to Jesus. This is what that eternal life looks like. It is knowing 
the only true God in Jesus Christ. We got to cover Gnosko real quick because we'll get confused. The word no can mean a lot of things. I know Brian. I know that chair's red. I know my wife. Those are all different types of knowledge, I hope. If I know that chair's red to the same degree that I know my wife, then you should, I've got a problem. There's some weirdness that's going on. I shouldn't know the chair like that. Lock me up or something, right? That's a weird thing, right? In scripture, the word Gnosko means an intimate relationship between the knower and the object being known. It's an intimate relationship. It's a relational word. To know something isn't just intellectual. Whereas in our culture, in, in um, this uh, um, post-Reformation or Enlightenment period, we just have this idea that it's just knowledge, just information. No, no, no. To know something is an intimate word. And you know that, pun intended, because you know your wife, you know your children, right? You know things that you really care about, and you just know two plus two is four, right? You're not really intimate with two plus two is four. That'd be weird, right? So please don't be, uh, you intimate math people. So this word gnosko, he says, this is eternal life, that you know the only true God. You have an intimate relationship between the knower and the object being known. And Jesus Christ, whom he sent. We want to grow to know God deeply. But something prevents us from that. And I had this moment this morning, and I got to just be honest here. Um, which way am I going to go? We don't know. Uh, I've, I've studied so much for this sermon and this, gosh, I hope this doesn't sound like a humble brag, but we just, man, there, there are two things I believe that prevent all of us from knowing God deeply. Cause I struggle with it and I've talked to so many people about this and, and I, if I could just hang my shepherding hat on, on these ideas, I probably would because I just see it be such a consistent issue over and over and over nonstop, right? It's just, we, we need to grow to know God deeply and we have these distractions. We have these struggles with doing this. And so for me, as I've wrestled with this, with, with our shepherds, there's a couple things I narrowed down, but as we've studied and we've wrestled with this and we look at all these different quotes and psychology and, and neurological studies, and we look at what scripture says, and we look about things in revelation and things from the beginning, we can't sit in here for three and a half hours and talk about this. We just can't do it. Um, neurologically speaking, we can't do it because information only works for about 25 to 30 minutes in our culture. Attention spans constantly going down, insert your research. We don't have time to talk about all of this stuff. And so thank God, man, Wade approached me this morning. He's like, hey, you've been bragging about how excited you are <laughs> to uh, Wade. Everybody, Wade McDonald? Okay. Uh, get pumped by Wade. He said, uh, he said, you've been so excited about how God is giving us an opportunity and we study John just to have freedom, to not be locked into a schedule and to be able to say, man, if we want to take three weeks on Trinity, we can. If we want to take, you know, uh, two weeks on baptism, we can. Why do you need to start? Why do you need to start in John? Like if you need to preach on grow for two weeks, why don't do it? Like no one in here is upset. Is anyone upset? Okay, good. And so, so we've split this in half now. Uh, which is great. So we're not going to have a three-hour sermon, and, and I released a little bit of the tension of, of all this, but here's what you need to know. We put all this study and passion and time into these things, and, and I don't mean to be up here like, oh, preaching's so hard, being a shepherd's hard. <laughs> Forget that. God's called me to it. I don't need to whine about it. That's, that's, that doesn't matter. But here's the thing. We say this all the time. We, we can't force you to do anything, I can hardly force myself to do anything. I certainly can't force my kids to do anything. Like, I can't change their heart. And, and it creates this tension where if, if Romans one twenty five is true, if Judges 2 is true, that, that there can be generations that are raised that don't know God, and it completely ruins the culture forever. 
Like just a constant ripple. If Romans 1.25 is true, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. If, if John 8 is true that the devil's the father of lies, if, if it's constantly true that our battle isn't against flesh and blood, but against powers, principalities, uh, spiritual force, Ephesians 6, there's so much at battle for your life, for your soul, right now, this moment. There's always a reason to be distracted. There's always a reason to be hurried. There's always a reason to, to give it all up. There's a reason to check your cell phone. There's a reason to tune out what I'm saying. There's all these things coming against us. And, and no matter how much me or Adam or Nathan or Jimmy or anyone up here tries to craft the perfect sermon, we can't, we can't do or force anything. Only Jesus changes hearts. And by God's spirit, we pray that he comes in here and that he gives us eyes to see and ears to hear. Because these things are hard to talk about. When we talk about things we struggle with, when we talk about what keeps us from growing to know God deeply, it's going to call out of us. Oh, don't tell me how in my life. Wait, what do you? I don't, well, that's like this, bro, this person's really hurried. This person's really distracted. So it's going to come out of us. And so I want us to first step back and say, how would you know you're living a lie? If the devil's the father of lies, if he's used lying, he's a murderer from the beginning, as Jesus said, how would you know you're living a lie? You would only know if you were looking to truth. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. This is why we come and look to Jesus. This is why we preach the word. This is why we preach the gospel. And so this morning, as we talk about these things, the first thing I want to do is pray and open our hands. I want us to ask, how would I know if I'm living a lie? Psalms 139, 23 and 24. This is a prayer of ours this morning. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there is any grievous way in me, any unright way in me, any wicked way in me, some translations say. And lead me in the way everlasting. Jesus tells us the everlasting life is to know God and to know Jesus. So we're saying, search me, O God, show me where I'm off, where I'm wicked. Help me know what I don't know so that I can look to Jesus. That's what the psalmist is writing. And so this morning, we're going to take a time to pray and do that. If you want to open your hands with me, let's pray. God, may you guide this time as we read your word, as we wrestle with the things that, that prevent us from growing to know you deeply. And I pray that your spirit would speak. We trust you. We believe in you and we believe that your spirit is here, that, that you want to give us ears to hear, eyes to see, that you want to convict us, call us into confession, call us into repentance. Teach us to look to Jesus. Amen. All right. Let's go. What are some, uh, what are some inventions that have grossly changed the course of human history? Think about inventions. Some of you are extrovert. You already got something to say. You're excited, but give the introverts a few minutes, please. Smartphone. Come on. That's too easy. Wheel. The wheel. Yeah, that was a big deal. Has anyone ever tried to push a square wheel? It's not a wheel then, I guess, by definition. What else? Airplane. Yeah, right, brothers? Um, <laughs> I wish Adam were here. He would laugh that I said right, brothers. What did you say? Sorry. Air conditioning. That's a big one, yeah. Hmm? Binding? Writing. Yeah, yeah. Like being a, yeah. Vacuum. Good one, Bear. Man, Mama loves the vacuum, huh? Uh, I didn't mean that like in some weird masculine thing. Nikki just legitimately loves to sweep and vacuum. It's a big deal for her. 
Wow, I almost got myself in trouble there. Um, I'm going to list three, uh, and we're not going to talk a ton about them because we want to move, but uh, there's three that sociologists say have just really patterned Western society and have been a big deal. The first one was the clock. And it's interesting to think through that it's uh, in the span of human history actually having a timepiece a clock, that's a newer thing. Um, the vast majority of human history, how did they know what time it was? They didn't. It wasn't 12.01. It wasn't 12.20 p.m. That didn't function in their brains. It was sun 30. It was moon 18. Like, that's how it functioned. And that's so weird to us. I even say that, and you're kind of like, uh, what? Because we, it's so far-fetched to us. And that's why the clock, like the digital clock, is such or, or a timepiece you carry with you, um, clockwork and all those things. That's such a big deal. Big Ben is such a big deal. Because then, all of a sudden, humans were able to know if they were late, if they were on time. They were able to produce in a time frame. They were able to monetize time. It was a big deal. It changed society, right? We can't say it changed the world. I'm going to nitpick sociologically for a minute. Stop saying something changed the world because there's always a tribe somewhere that's never heard of whatever you're talking about. Nothing has changed the world but Jesus Christ. Nothing. And so like, we want to pretend like, oh, this is, we all want to, uh, one of the number one Google searches in 2016, it doesn't matter, was how do we change the world? And we want to teach kids to change the world. No one's going to change the world. Like Mark Zuckerberg maybe has come close. The Google guys has come close, but there's still places that don't have Facebook. There's still places that have never heard of the internet. So it's like, like nothing's changing the world. Jesus Christ changed the world. But anyway, that's off. Man, that was a weird tangent. So you have the clock and then you have the light bulb. Again, vast majority of history, they did not have light bulbs. So what did they do when it was dark? They lit lamps and eventually those burn out. So you want to ration them. Candles burn out. So you want to ration them. So eventually you blow out the light and it was just dark, right? Interestingly enough, before the invention of the light bulb, your average human slept 10 to 11 hours a night. Can you imagine your world if you slept 10 to 11 hours a night? You can't. No one in this room sleeps that much. Like, it's just not who we are, right? So you have the clock, right? And then you have the light bulb, and these things are like patterning. Now we can work when it's dark. Now we can monetize, we can pattern. And then you have the industrial revolution and, and digital revolution. The third one is kind of up for grabs. Some people say radio, television. Ultimately, people say smartphone because it was all paving the way to the smartphone, and the smartphone represents just all digital technology. It all has come to a head to say, man, we can now do whatever we want, whenever we want. We are free. We've eradicated boredom. We are just go, 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 go. And this is the Western world. I want to discuss the next two weeks. Our biggest struggle to know God deeply is hurry and distraction. And I'm sorry if that means you don't want to be here next week. So we're going to talk about distraction, but you should come because we're distracted. We're hurried and it's a struggle. It's certainly a struggle for me. Uh, 1913, Henry Ford had um, uh, perfected the what? The Model T or whatever, but it was the assembly line. He had perfected the assembly line. So we had the Industrial Revolution, and he was the dude that just, like, got this going. You had factories and machine work and assembly lines, and it was incredible. But there was a big tension, because about 1913, 1914, there was an enormous, enormous turnover for Henry Ford, right? He would hire 70,000 people to keep, guess how many? 10,000. 70,000 people would get hired, and he'd only keep 10,000 of them. They were quitting in huge droves. Why? 
Well, there were riots. People were just losing their mind over this factory work. It ultimately led to some child labor tension that we had for a long time in this country. Like, why was this such an issue? Because humans went from being craftsmen and intimately connected to their craft to now just being workhorses that turned a wrench 5,000 times a day. Now, don't, if you're like, dude, that's, we built the backs of this country on those humans. That's, I'm not saying anything against anybody. The Industrial Revolution has a lot of good things. A lot of good things came from Industrial Revolution. But there's a pattern that happened that started in this era of we need factories, we need to turn a wrench 5,000 times a day, and we need to measure you by your productivity. Right? It's not just about how good of a shoe you created, it's how many shoes you created. And this started becoming huge in this time. In fact, you could talk a lot about Karl Marx and how he originally wrote Marxism away from this pattern in the West that was happening in our country and how, like, and I'm not a Marxist by any means, please, if I say Karl Marx, don't lose your mind. This is where it came from. He wrote this idea of like, man, you are industrializing and turning humans into machines. And this is where this tension comes from. All these people were quitting. It's not wrong in itself, but it created a lot of tension. Work was not about vocation or craftsmanship. It was about efficiency and production. How did he fix this? We don't have this problem today in the same way. Although those of you who are on the labor force are like, yeah, people are quitting all the time. But you know how Henry Ford fixed this? He doubled the minimum wage. Instead of making $2.50 an hour, humans in 1913 were making $5 an hour. To put that in perspective, when I first started working in Culver's, when I was 15 years old in Springfield, Missouri, the minimum wage was like $5.50. So these factory workers in uh, 1913 were making just about what I was making, right? So he doubled it. Problem stopped. Way less turnover, no more riots, because they had more money. There's a lot of conclusions we could come from this. This sort of story is found all over, early Industrial Revolution. But there's a price for all of us. There's a price for all of us so that you will be productive and efficient. And it certainly leads to hurry and busyness. Got to pay to play, work hard, make that cheddar, grind, hustle, get money, get paid, let's go. That's the pattern of our world. As a society, we've grown so to greatly value what we produce and accomplish each day. And it's made us faster and faster and faster as the years go by. Everything's about efficiency, production. How do you hack your day? How do you figure it out? In 1965, a Senate uh, subcommittee from the Senate, they concluded that by the year 2000, the average American would only work 14 hours per week. By the year 2000, how many of you were alive in the year 2000? Yeah, a lot of us, right? Okay, so uh, did you work more than 14 hours a week? Come on, 1965, this is a real thing. Go look it up. And so they believe, dude, because of the greatness of of the post-industrial revolution and all the ways technology is going, they were able to look ahead and say, we will only work 14 hours a week and have access to seven weeks of vacation time a year. This was the heart behind this cartoon character. Who knows this guy? Yeah, newsflash, how many seasons did this show run? One. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? Growing up as a kid, I was not a native because I wasn't alive in the 60s, but like, I thought this show was like forever. And they made a, you know, they made a movie and it's like, no man, it ran one season. Right. And actually I think uh, it was, it was set in 2060. And so like, as of now, George Jetson is three years old, right? If we were doing that by, who, who cares? No one cares. But this was the idea. It was like, look, technology will go so much that George will be able just to go to work. He'll put his feet up on his desk. He'll just push a button. He won't have to work. This was the idea. How many of you work only 14 hours a week? Nah, come on. Like, that's clearly not what happened. 
In a research, uh, some research from the workforce group that came out this year, leisure time is consistently going down, and they do these researches every few years for the work and labor first and such things. But 47% of Americans desire a work a workcation instead of full time, uh, a full time off. A workcation is where you take your work on vacation with you, right? Has anyone done one of these? Like, I'm on vacation, but I'm clearly working. Yeah, come on, raise your hand. I know you who do this. Come on, don't lie to me. Like, so you're working while you're on vacation. And, and 47% said, I would prefer this. 81% saying that regardless of whether they want to, they're going to work while they're on vacation. Why? Because they have to. They don't have a choice. Vacation's not vacation. Got to work while I'm on it. See, it turns out that this Senate, this idea in 1965, they were wrong. Convenience, production, efficiency has not made us work less and rest more, but instead has made us work more and rest less. We chose money over time instead of time over money. That's what happened. Henry Ford was right. You dangle that carrot in front of us, we'll chase it because it makes us happy. It gives us the better life. It's the lie we've all been duped into. Sorry if I'm offending you. It's just, it's just, that's it. You can go read the research. I can point out. Here's one commentator when he's looking at all this with the Senate. He says, but the experts failed to take into consideration our propensity for wanting more stuff, even at the expense of our leisure time, health, and retirement. Interesting. Psychology has been diagnosing people with no, what's known as hurry sickness. Does anyone know hurry sickness? You've heard of this thing? Yeah, I hadn't either, but it turns out it's been around since 1950. Here's the psychological definition. A behavior pattern characterized by continual rushing and anxiousness, an overwhelming and continual sense of urgency, a malaise in which a person feels chronically short on time and so tends to perform well, task faster, and get flustered when encountering any kind of delay. This isn't a new thing. It was coined by uh, Meyer Friedman in the 1950s. Uh, he said, it's a continuous struggle, an unremitting attempt to accomplish and achieve more and more things or participate in more and more events in less and less time. Meyer Friedman was, was a cardiologist. <laughs> He was studying this in association to heart conditions. In 1950, before your smartphone, before huge spurts in color television and all this networking shows, this guy said, hey, you know, this, this hurriedness, this hurried sickness, everyone's feeling so rushed. It's causing them to be chronically stressed, angry, prone to heart attacks, and increase of heart disease. Do you feel hurried ever? You feel busy? I do. <laughs> This is the biggest struggle in my life. My family and I deal with this so much. We, we really fight for Sabbath time. We really fight for, for quiet time, alone time, because I'm always going. We're always going. And, and I feel so bad that maybe I've accidentally shepherded you to just affirm this idea that we always have to go. Uh, so much so that like uh, I was so stressed this morning when Wade came in because he didn't have time to talk about all the stuff we've studied. And yesterday I didn't have time to work on the sermon and to do some of the other events. And then today, this afternoon, I don't have time to do all the things that are already bubbling in my head that need to be done today. I don't have enough time. Nikki and I disagree on sleep a lot. Uh, who here loves to sleep? Raise your hand if you just love sleep. I hate sleep. Does anyone else here hate to sleep? Yeah. Mm. Wade's my dog. Uh, Jeff, yeah. Here's the thing about me. So Nikki and I, Nikki's like, she goes to bed and she's like, she'll say it. She'll come and she goes, I love bed. And like, I'll do it and make fun of her when I get in bed. Cause I, it's, I, I can't stand it. And we had this moment like three weeks ago, or maybe it was months ago. Time's relative. But I, uh, I recognize that, that man, here's why I don't like sleep. To me, sleep is surrender. 
And that is not how Nikki is your life. You're like, yeah. To Nikki, sleep is rest. Sleep is fulfillment. It's the day's over. To me, it's the day's given up upon. If, if I go to sleep, it means that I am assuming all the things that I thought I would get done are now not done, and I'm giving up. And tomorrow I have to start the day with those things in debt. And so I don't like sleep, and it's killing me, and we work on it, and we struggle. Because uh, one, one uh, psychologist, actually he's a doctor as well, he said, that, uh, he said that if you don't find rest, rest will find you. And he was referring to Sabbath, but he was specifically talking about those he sees in the hospital. You don't find rest, rest will find you. Uh, along with this hurriedness pace, Professor Michael Zigarelli, he was a, he's a Christian professor, and he did a study with 20,000 Christians, ages 15 to 88. To I, uh, I heard someone talk about this, and I looked it up, and I read it. I read his whole report on it. Um, it's long and boring, but I can send it to you if you want. 20,000 Christians from ages 15 to 88 across 30, 139 countries. His conclusion was busyness is a major block in our relationship with God. Here's what he said. I love this quote. Had to keep it in. It may be the case that one, Christians are assimilating to a culture of busyness, hurry, and overload, which leads to two, God becoming more marginalized in Christians' lives, which leads to three, a deteriorating relationship with God, which leads to four, Christians becoming even more vulnerable to adopting secular assumptions about how we live, uh, which leads to five, more conforming to a culture of busyness, hurry, and overload, and then the cycle begins again, over and over and over. He cites as a solution Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is the good and acceptable and perfect will. I, I'm going to stop there with research and what smart people have said and all that. There's a few other quotes, but listen, I don't need to prove to us that we're hurried and busy. It's not me, it's someone else. I'm sure it's someone else. I'm sure it's your partner. It's not you, whatever. I don't need to prove that to you. We know it, though. We know that we're stressed, we're hurried and busy. And this guy, upon researching, it comes to the conclusion we all know. The more hurried we are, the less time we have with God. The more hurried we become, the less time we have with God. Wouldn't that be an interesting lie of the devil, who is the father of lies, to say, hey, you know what's most important? What you produce, what you get done. How many quiet times you have. How many times you pray. Get it done. Check it off the list. Read the daily Bible app verse and then forget about it five minutes later. Go, 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 go. And then all of a sudden, we've put all the right places in our life in categories so we can check all these boxes off and we never actually live or abide with the Lord because we're abiding with ourselves. We're looking to ourselves. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. More at risk than our emotional health and our physical health, busyness and hurriedness are challenging every parts of our life and crushing us. It challenges our souls. It's destroying the very core of what it means to be human. Dallas Willard said, hurry is the great enemy of spiritual life in our day. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. When he was asked in that same interview, what else? Because he was asked like, hey, I'm a really busy, there's a guy interviewing Ray Ortland. He said, I'm a really busy pastor and I'm really sick of this whole church thing where we come to church and we're really busy and we do the church thing, then we leave and we go and we leave and da, 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 and the pastor, I got to do this event, and this event, and this event. And he asked Dallas, what do I do? Dallas said, we must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. And then Ray said, what else, Dallas? And Dallas sat there for a minute and he said, there's nothing else. There's nothing else. Hurry is the great enemy of our spiritual life in our day. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Corey Ten Boom. If the devil can't make you sin, he'll make you busy. Carl Jung. I am from Carl Jung. 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 
Yeah, yeah, he was the dude who uh, was part of the introvert-extrovert language, right? He kind of settled all that, so you have like introverts and extroverts, right? I'm clearly an introvert. Uh, just kidding. Um, some of you are introverts. You're like, please quit sucking my energy every Sunday. But yeah, so that's me. Carl Jung did this, right? He also helped with some of the Meyer Briggs stuff. Uh, he said, hurry isn't of the devil. It is the devil. Hurry isn't of the devil. It is the devil. Hurricane is connected to chronic anger, outrage culture, that desire to really just rip people apart on social media because your radio shows better than theirs, whatever it is. Violence, anxiety, rise of suicide, mental illness, loneliness, burnout. I'm convinced hurry's connected to all these things. Why? Because Jesus tells us to abide. To know him and to love him is to abide. John 17, 3. This is eternal life that they know you, the only God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. The cry of Jesus is for us to abide with him. That's a big theme in John. We're going to be ringing through. We say, John, is how are we abiding with Jesus? How are we dwelling with him? If we're dwelling with Jesus, if we're following Jesus, if, if Jesus teaches us this pattern of how he leaves and goes to the quiet places, the desolate places we see several times in scripture, Jesus has a teaching that he says sums up all of his teachings. We've talked about a lot here. Do you remember what it is? It's called the greatest commandment. It's in Matthew 22. A teacher is uh, pressing Jesus, a teacher of the law, like, hey, tell us what's most important. And Jesus says, here's the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it. Which actually, what he's saying is, it's the same commandment. That's what the Greek means. This is the same commandment. So he's saying, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbors yourself. On this is all the law and prophets. That whole Bible stuff you've ever read, this is what it's all about, Jesus says. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and strength. Love your neighbors yourself. Now, we get that. All you need is love, right? And we have tensions and how we define that in our culture. And we, we get so confused about this. In our church, we talk about this. Love is what? Love is commitment and sacrifice. That's what love is. Love is commitment and sacrifice. And so we understand that because we have all these things we love, but the things that I am most committed to and that I make most sacrifice for, I love the most. That's clearly how love works in our culture. If you want to understand what love is, young dating person, you're trying to figure out your dating life and he or she tells you, I love you. How do they commit and sacrifice for you? Don't buy their trashy words. Don't buy the poems of our culture or the stupid love songs that we have because they don't mean anything. Love is not love. Love isn't what you or your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your spouse says. Love is, God is love, is what scripture says. God is love. And we know that that is commitment and sacrifice because we look to Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that who believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Love is commitment and sacrifice. I'll never get sick of saying that because we struggle with it. Our culture wants us to forget that. That's what love is. Now, here's how this hits home for me because I'm hurried and busy. Not like any of you all. It's clearly just me, but <laughs> hurried and busy and I struggle. About a year ago, I came across a verse that's super popular, but I, instead of reading over it, I just stopped because Paul is listing some things about love. It's read a lot at weddings. It's 1 Corinthians 13, 4. And he says several things in that verse, but I just stopped at the first one. Paul says, love is, say patient. Love is patient. The Greek word is unhurried. 
to be patient in bearing the sufferings and injuries of others. It is a unhurried word. It is a long-suffering word. In fact, the word also means long in spirit. You're able to bear long. You're able to withstand much. Love is patient. C.S. Lewis said, how you respond to an interruption is who you really are. Shut up! Leave me alone! I'm busy! Can't you tell I'm writing a sermon? Can't you tell I'm reading the Bible? I'm trying to have my quiet time, Nikki. Be quiet! Come on. How do you guys experience interruptions? How, who are you when someone interrupts your time, your patterns, your life? Man, does that ring true for anyone else? Maybe that's just me, especially with parenting with people I love. How you respond to interruptions is who you really are. Interestingly enough, the vast majority of Jesus' interactions are interruptions. Read about it. Jesus seems interrupted all the time, but he never seems in a hurry. He never seems scattered, disoriented having chronic stress or angry or prone to heart attacks. Those things don't describe Jesus. Hurry sickness is nowhere on the realm of Jesus Christ. Love and compassion are patient. Empathy is patient. Hurry is incompatible with love. That simple idea changed my life recently within the last couple of years. Hurry is incompatible with love. I cannot I cannot love my kids when I'm hurried because I can't possibly be patient. I can't love Nikki if I'm hurried. I can't love you all if I'm hurried. And dang it, the world, the flesh, the devil, they just keep making me hurried. I'm hurried right now. I've got negative 12 seconds to preach, negative 13 now, negative 14. We got to go. Hurry never stops. Thanks, Tech Booth. I love you. That's not on you. That, I asked them to put that boundary on me. Otherwise, we would be here three hours. But come on, everything's hurry in my life. Hurry is incompatible with love. The opposite of love is not hate. It's apathy. It's discontent. It's dishonor. In fact, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, when he says, do not be angry, the word anger is actually not a great translation for that word. It's actually contempt. It means to look your nose down on people. It's right in line with Jesus when we taught up here on the Sermon on the Mount, and we taught about judging others. You guys remember I had Scott Loring up here, and we hung a bunch of weights from him, and he like had to stand on all those weights. And when we said, this is what we do to someone. We hang weights of judging on them. We, we caricaturize them. We classify them. Oh, that's just an idiot who drives a Honda. Oh, that's just the dumb lady who I work with, or that's just the jerk who voted for Biden, or whatever it is. We caricaturize someone in our mind. We reduce them. This is what Jesus had in mind with judging others. Oh, that person doesn't pray like I do. Oh, that person doesn't read the Bible. Oh, that person really likes John Piper. And we just reduce those people. We say, oh no, I figured you out. I can look down my nose at you now with contempt. I can hold you captive in my brain. I am God, and you are prisoner of my understanding of the world, because I've decided what's good and what's evil. This is me looking down my nose, right? That's the opposite of love. I see this happen all the time. We're so hurried. We're so busy. We're so distracted. We can't see each other for who we were created to be because all we have left is contempt, judging, reducing. An author that I respect, Andy Crouch, said this, and I'm afraid to attribute this to him because he might have been quoting someone else, but he said, if I don't behold or contemplate you, I will exploit you. 
If I don't take a minute to behold Mr. Keith and contemplate who Mr. Keith is, eventually I will exploit him. Because my culture, my heart, my corruptness inside of me wants so bad for David to be the most important person. For everything to orbit David. For everything to come back to how special and wonderful and great I am. For me to be productive. For my time to be valued. For me to hack each day so I get as much done possible. So I go to bed, not stressed that I've given up, but I go to bed, I've done the day rightly. And if I don't take a moment to contemplate the people in my life or the situation in my life, if I don't take a moment to behold them, I will exploit them because that's who we are. That quote stood out to me. I thought it might encourage you. Hurry robs us from receiving love and giving love. Hurry robs us from knowing the Lord, from abiding with him. Why? Because love is patient. Relationships take time. All relationships in your life have been built on time. In fact, uh, this whole idea of puppy love and things that, that come up really quickly and, and, you know, we got married in a fever, hotter than a pepper sprout. Man, that's not my notes. I don't know where that came from, but Johnny Cash just came out of me. But this idea of doing things quickly, we all kind of look down on that because it's like, that's not how things go. In the 90s, early 2000s, a lot of parenting books were written and they said, you spell love like this. Do you know what it is? T-I-M-E. Yeah. That's how you spell love. T-I-M-E. Kids don't schedule you to love them. The people in your life that are important, they don't schedule you to love them. That's not how love works because love is commitment and sacrifice. If you have to schedule it, it's convenient for you. This is why Jesus taught us that his interruptions were welcome moments for him to love, to serve other people. Think about all the stories in the Bible where Jesus is interrupted. Fascinates me. So if hurry's the problem, then we want to believe that we just need more time, more efficiency, right? That's it. If we just had more time, that's all we need. We're hurried, so I need more time. If I get more time, then I'll be less hurried. Come on. I'm going to tell you now I love you. That's a lie from the devil. There is no app. There's no better calendaring. There's no efficient planning that you have with your spouse on Sunday afternoons. I've tried. <laughs> Nothing will change your heart. We have been wired to hurry because the crux of hurry is my time. I'm special. I'm the most important thing. I can be like God. The only thing that changes our hearts is Jesus. If we had more time, we'd continue to cram more and more and more in. But Mark 1.15, Jesus teaches the kingdom of heaven is here. You must repent and believe in the gospel. Look to Jesus, to know him, to abide. That's what changes our heart. What do we do with all this hurry stuff? How do we fix this hurriedness? We have to repent and believe in the gospel. We have to see the world differently, and that means we have to look to Jesus. When we sing these songs, holy, 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 I told Nathan to, to really emphasize this idea of holy. You know, it's interesting in the scriptures, uh, when you go to Revelation 4, and there's this throne room scene, and there's these, these seraphim, right? And they're covered in what? They're creepy creatures. What are they covered in? They're covered in eyes, right? Right? And it's not a complex symbol. Like, I know some of us are like, whoa, Revelation, man, it's so deep. We can't figure it out. This is a really simple analogy, actually. What, if something's covered in eyes, what do you think it does really well? It sees, because you see with your peepers, right? You see, right? That's what it does. And so these creatures that are covered with eyes, it sees God in his fullness, in his glory. They're there and they're seeing God better than us, because we have, how many eyes do we have? Two, no offense if you don't have one right now or whatever, but most, most people, average, is, average eyeballs in the room is probably two, uh, maybe 1.8. I don't know where we're at on patches. But anyway, so we, the, they have all, they're covered in eyes, and they see the Lord. And what do they say? Holy, holy, holy 
is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. They are saying, you are so utterly unique. You are so utterly set apart and special and and big and wonderful. You're so beyond words that all we can do is repeat three times, holy, 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 which in Hebrew is completeness, perfection. You are holy, holy, holy to the biggest degree, utterly unique. You were, you are, and you will be. That's it. They see God. We have to see the world differently. This is why we say, look to Jesus. How do you fix the hurriedness of your life? How do you fix the fact that we're six minutes past sermon time right now? How do you fix it? How do we go? Oh, what do we do? What do we do? You look to Jesus because Jesus was unhurried. Jesus was patient. Jesus took time to be silent and to slow down. Jesus welcomed interruptions because Jesus loves. Love is patient. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him won't perish, but will have everlasting life. Jesus wants to save us from our broken relationship with the Lord that has been so tainted by our hurriedness, by our distraction. And his response is, this is eternal life. Look to the Lord. Look to Jesus. So how do we do that? A couple thoughts as we close on, on how we do that. How do we grow to know God deeply? We do it together. Last week we said, show up. Show up. Be here. Those who are here have the opportunity best to grow in Christ. Those who are not here don't have a shot. And that's not some manipulative phrase to fill these seats with butts. That's not the point. The point is that I know from reading scripture, we know from reading scripture that we're doing this together. If you're hurried and distracted, if you're living a lie, how would you know? Thank God that someone will speak truth into your life. Thank God for all the people, for Wade McDonald, who reminds me, hey, you don't need to be so rushed this morning. Calm down. You've been talking about this problem in your life for five years. Calm down. Thank God we have people in our lives. We need to do this together. Slow down. Find margin. Pause. Experience silence. One of the great disciplines of all Christians through all history is silence. And we can't stand it in the West. In fact, we've created devices that literally go off uh, thousands of times a day to make sure that we're not silent. It's, have you ever tried to find silence, by the way? It's so hard. I've been experiencing in my life lately. It's so hard to find silence. So much noise out there. In fact, slow is a pejorative in our culture. You have mentally slow, slow service at a restaurant, a movie that's slow. In general, the word slow in our culture is bad. Slow is bad. Fast is good. That's the pattern. Don't be slow. Love is slow. Love is patient. Love grows. Love is not hurried. Slow is the speed of love. So here's a very practical application for you. Very, very practical. I want to encourage you to take a posture this week. Just, just try me out on this. Okay, set a timer for five minutes, for 10 minutes. Hopefully you have a timer that's not on your phone. But here's what I've been doing. And it's been changing my life. In the mornings, I wake up and I start my day with silence. And most recently, I've been actually completely not even touching my phone. I was using my phone to keep a 10-minute timer, but even that was proving to kind of draw me away from it. So now I'm trying to use my watch. Uh, I say that I failed at that this morning, by the way. So none of this is perfect. We struggle. But sit in silence. Let God have the first word in your day. When you wake up, maybe you make coffee first because that's what you need to function. That's who I am. And so we can talk about caffeine addiction another time. But uh, so I make a cup of coffee first and then I sit in a chair in our room. Nikki started going upstairs because we couldn't be around each other without me extroverting our situation and ruining our silence time together. So she goes upstairs. Um, please don't say anything about how the pregnant one goes up the stairs. Okay. She chose that space. I did not. I did not force my wife upstairs, but I make a cup of coffee and I sit and I set a timer for five or 10 minutes and I just... God, I want you to have the first word today. 
And I just sit and my mind wanders. And I would tell you, if you were in my brain, it would seem so unspiritual to you. Of the 10 minutes, there might be two of it that actually feels deeply meaningful. But I will tell you that that 10 minutes of silence in itself, the core of that in itself hasn't changed me. But the patterns of my life has completely changed. I desire to abide with Christ more than I ever have. When I have junk go on, when I find out that people passed away that we've been praying for, and it's just like, my first proclivity now is I just want to sit with the Lord because I'm growing a posture. And we're going to talk about that next week. We're going to talk about devices versus instruments and the tension in growing postures, but we're growing a posture. I would encourage you this week to set a timer, five, 10 minutes. And if you're, if you're like a type A person, like, but what do I do, dog? Here's what you do. As you're sitting in silence, just start breathing and say, search me, O God, and know my heart. And then listen. And then maybe say it again in your brain, because 10 minutes can feel like a really long time for some of us. Search me, O God, and know my heart. And as things come up, confess them. Yeah, God, I'm really worried about this thing. It keeps coming to mind, and, and I, I, don't, I don't know what to do with it. Confess it. Repent. Rethink about the things you think about. Look to Jesus. Ask the Lord to transform you and renew your mind. Romans 12, 2. Then sit in silence. And as your time ends, your 10 minutes, 5 minutes, whatever you set, go and look to Jesus as you go in the day. Because you got to go do stuff. you got to go clock in. you got to go be a husband, a father, a parent, a girlfriend, a boyfriend, a student, whatever you got to do. you got to go do stuff. God's giving you roles, but you're doing it in Christ. You're doing it looking to Jesus because he has the first and last word in your day. I would encourage you to try doing this in the evenings as well. I'm not hitting the evenings, but maybe you can. I'm, I'm slow at picking up new disciplines. We have to ruthlessly eliminate hurry. It has to be ruthless. A resistance, a revival, a revolution. You can't assume this is going to just happen. This has been going on in human history the entire time. This desire to produce, to grow, to make a name for ourselves all the way back to the Tower of Babel. To be like God, to decide good from evil for ourselves. You aren't going to just accidentally come over postures of Sabbath and silence and rest. You're not going to hurry yourself into unhurriedness. You're not going to hurry yourself into unhurriedness because love is patient. You're not going to love others by being hurried because love is patient. You're not going to love the Lord by being more busy because love is patient. Love doesn't just happen. Good relationships don't just happen. It takes intentional time to know and grow in love, to look to Jesus. How do you grow to know God deeply? Love slows down. The pace of love is slow. If you want to abide in Jesus, then you're going to have to slow down. You're going to have to stop. Cease striving. And know that he is God. John 15, 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. As we move into a time of response right now, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And there's several things you can do during this response time. Um, But I want us to recognize that this is a time for us to worship together, to look to Jesus together, specifically in the ordinance he gave us and the command he gave us to do this remembering me. And we do that as a body. There'll be five things up here in a moment that you can look to. But specifically, I would encourage you to open your hands during this response song And ask, Lord, how do I slow down? What does hurriedness grip on me? What what do I do with all this information? How do I abide in you, God? Ask him. And take time to be silent together as one body. Because we're going to do that here in a minute. We'll guide you through that. We do this every time we do Lord's Supper. We have a time of just breathing and being in silence. 
But during this time of response, if you need someone to pray with, if you haven't given your life to the Lord, if you're like, man, I don't really believe this yet. I'm struggling with who Jesus is. Does he really love me? Like I haven't given him my life. And so I have no reason to believe these things. Man, come forward. Let's talk about it. God brought you here for a reason. Maybe you haven't joined a church. Like, man, I want to be a part of this community, this family you talk about. I want to understand that. You can come up here and we talk. Or if you just need to pray, you can come up here. And you need to do some sort of bold act to say, like, this is the day. It's not just another Sunday. I need to take some action to say, this pattern, this posture in my life is going to change in Christ because of Christ. The disciplines we put in our life aren't righteousness. Dallas Willard said, disciplines aren't righteousness, they're wisdom. God has given you spiritual disciplines so that you can abide in Him. So that you can avoid the distractions, avoid the hurry. And so take time right now to do that. Pray with your family, pray with yourself. Move as you need to, and you can come get the elements as the Lord leads. God, I pray that you would guide us during this time of response. I pray that you would, you would pull away from us the, the hurriedness, the burden of, of going, and that we could abide. That by the power of your Spirit, through Jesus Christ, that we would abide with you now. You tell us when two or more gather that you're there. You're here with us. You say, I'm with you always, and we believe that, Jesus. May we as one body, as one family, abide in you now. Unhurried unrushed, in love with you. Teach us to love you. May your spirit guide us. May we be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Teach us to look to Jesus. Move as you need to.